1: Check out
0: transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com/slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC.
2: Tell me how disappointed you would be if your daughter was not a Man U fan.
0: He's speechless. Welcome to today's episode of Fanatics. This is Claire Kramer, and I am here with my co-host, Jake Maron. Say hi, Jake. Hey, what's going on? Claire, how's your day? <laughs> well, my day is going very well, and it's going to be a lot better because we have an amazing guest today. Yes. We have Nicholas Hatton on. He is an awesome producer of many funny things, Who is America, Barat, subsequent movie film, and of course, the Emmy-nominated eight-part series, Jury Duty, which is... Is this awesome combination of a mockumentary versus sort of like a spinal tap? Like, I don't know, what's the movie I'm thinking of? The
2: Truman Show. The Truman Show. Yeah, it's all those things. And what I love about Nicholas is he he blurs the lines of reality and fiction and and it's very cool in jury duty. But today he's here with us to talk about Manchester United. And Claire, I know anytime we have a football fan on the show, yes, European football, or I guess worldwide football, excuse me. I'm the only one who thinks of football, Texas, you know, picks in.
0: <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We forgive you. You know, I obviously, I'm trying to raise two footballers. And if I don't mm-hmm. accomplish this goal, I will have failed as a mother. Um, <laughs> my kids play football or soccer, whatever you want to call it, 24 seven, like, I actually just counted the soccer balls around my house yesterday, just randomly, because I have had people coming over doing construction, all this stuff. And I'm, you know, there's so many different areas. And we have and I'm not joking, there's over 17 soccer balls randomly through my yard and house. And that doesn't include the ones that are in my car, or their soccer bags, which only get used for practice. So having Nicholas come on and talk about Man U is like right up my alley. I'm super stoked.
2: And Nicholas has so much knowledge and he's so fun to talk to. So get ready, fanatics, because we're about to dive into Manchester United with Nicholas Haddon. So Nicholas, if there was a Mount Rushmore of Manchester United players, who would you put on it?
1: (sighs) Players. Uh, okay, Eric Cantona, who is a, a Frenchman who played for Sir Alex Ferguson's first Premier League winning team. Uh, he sort of is credited with with bringing it He's like a catalyst for change in Manchester United. He was a very mercurial. I mean, he's French, so almost by definition, mercurial. Right. <laughs> He was known for, at various points, he jumped into a stand to uh, double kick a Crystal Palace fan in the face who had insulted him. Uh, He got into many arguments with various team bosses. He would have extremely uh, enigmatic and cryptic quotes during press conferences. Just a a classic Frenchman who was also beautiful at playing football, uh, carried himself in this incredibly almost regal manner. His chest was always very puffed out. He had a very upright way of running. He could do amazing things with the ball and was was a a natural leader and kind of, like I said, was a catalyst for the beginning of the Sir Alex Ferguson era and and that reign of dominance that he had for the better part of two decades. So Cantona was one of them. Peter Schmeichel, goalkeeper from the same period. He was my first favourite footballer. This gigantic, blonde, Danish madman, who uh, was the uh, goalkeeper for United in the same team that Eric Cantona was in. And he was just this ferocious, wild, terrifying competitor. Looks essentially like directly from the line of Vikings who would you know plunder different seaside villages. And he was so imposing and so commanding. And you felt so safe with him being in your team. He is the mm-hmm. guy like, oh, we have a better chance of winning just because that guy is there. Uh, the sort of feeling of invulnerability he was number two number three and this is all reflective I'd say of sort of my time of growing up and and supporting United if you're going to do a whole history of the club you'd probably have to go back and say like George Best or Bobby Charlton or uh, Dennis Law who are part of the incredible team in the 1960s that won the European Cup under Sir Matt Busby. but I'm going to stick mainly in my my area because I actually got to see them Roy Keane, yeah. the character of Roy Kent.
0: Yes, I was uh-huh. going to say. <laughs> in
1: Ted Lasso. Very loose. It's very funny comparing like Brett Goldstein to like Roy Keane because uh-huh. they are in real life extremely different people. But <laughs> Brett's homage to him is obviously fantastic in Ted Lasso. But again, a very uh, curt, strong-willed and physically imposing person. Roy Keane is maybe the biggest pathologically competitive human uh, that mankind has come up with to date. He was competitive to a fault, almost self-destructively so. I mean, there are a number of stories in his career. So uh, Erling Haaland, the current top scorer in the Premier League under Manchester City, his dad played for Manchester City, was nowhere near as good a player as his son was. But he famously had two altercations with Roy Keane. One was when Roy Keane was trying to foul him in a game, Manchester United against I think he's playing for Leeds at the time, mm-hmm. and Keane ended up tearing his own ACL in the process of trying to foul this guy. What? Now this was back in the nineties, where yeah, if you tear your ACL in the nineties, way bigger thing than tearing your ACL now. Uh-huh. The technology now is okay; you can recover in like a year or whatever. Uh-huh. Then you might never come back. So Keane trying to injure this guy gets injured himself, and as he's lying on the floor, Roy Keane writhing in pain, this guy basically stands over him and says, "Get up, you." Use whatever slur you want to use in that sense, mm-hmm. And Roy Keane doesn't forget. So, when he re- had recovered uh, several months and years later, the next time they faced each other, the ball came into Haaland. Roy Keane came in, his foot was at knee height, and he completely took out Haaland uh, in revenge. He severed multiple tendons and ligaments in his knee, and he never really recovered. And he actually sued Roy Keane because it was essentially an act of malice rather than actually a sporting competition. Don't mess with Roy Keane is the point. As well as being quite a a scary guy, he was um, maybe the most competitive human being ever, an incredible player technically, and an unbelievable leader and someone who led by example. And if you think about what we try and do as professionals, especially when we reach a certain level of responsibility, and let's say there are people who work with us or work for us, you think about how you want to lead them and the different schools of management and thought. He's definitely one of the more brutal schools where he will scream at you if you are not achieving a certain standard that he expects. But it works. And when you're at the highest level of that competition of that game, then you sort of need those kind of figures. That was Roy. God, I've only done three and there's one left. And the fourth one, fourth one would probably be Paul Scholes, Mm. who played alongside Roy Keane in Manchester United's treble winning 1999 team. Roy Keane was... The destroyer uh, was the, the, the force of nature in the middle of the park. And Paul Scholes was, he was kind of an artist. The things he could do with the football, uh, his vision, his ability to see other players on the pitch seemingly were behind them. He knew where they were at all times. They used to call him SatNav, which was the old expression for satellite navigation they used to use in the UK when they had like, when Waze first came out, they called it SatNav. And their nickname for Paul Scholes was SatNav because he knew where everyone was at all times. When you're watching the game, You think you can see everything Mm -hmm. and you can actually think if you're watching it on TV, you think you can see it better than them because you have a bird's eye view of everything that's going on. And when you watch Paul Skull's play, the magic of him was that he could still execute passes, which you didn't see, even though you can see the entire field in front of
0: you. The field IQ. Yes. Yeah,
1: exactly. And it was almost that preternatural ability. If you watch a lot of a sport, you get used to the rhythms and the patterns and sort of the formulas, the routes that that, that appear You watch when you're watching basketball or American football. Same thing for football. You get used to a sort of series of a, a pattern of passes. He is one of those players that would just surprise you. And you didn't even realize that that was the kind of pass that was available to that person at that time. So he was a kind of an artist and a wizard in that way. That's my Mount Rushmore. I think that's my top four.
0: It's solid. I love it. And, you know, it's so interesting because... Every person that you chose, every story, every description was half about football, and half about the personality, the culture, and the experience of watching them play. So it's so much more than a sport. What's your origin story with football? When was the first time you were introduced to it? And when was the first time you were introduced to Man U?
1: Well, I was born into it, as is often the case for uh, English children. My father was from Manchester, and he didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. So he was was from Manchester, so he supported (laughs) Manchester United. It hasn't been the case for decades. And it's actually one of the more obscure bits of sort of trivia that people don't realize. But originally, there was a religious kind of divide between the two clubs in Manchester. Oh. Catholics would generally support Manchester United. And the Protestants would tend to support Manchester City. That's, this is dating back decades and decades mm-hmm. and decades. But my dad is Catholic. His, his father was Catholic. I come from Irish Catholic stock. So you always supported Manchester United. And that was similar to a lot of clubs in Scotland, very famously. The two biggest clubs in Scotland are called Celtic and Rangers. They're both in the city of Glasgow. And they have a very firmly established religious divide between which two teams you went with. So anyway, I was, I was sort of born into it. I didn't have a lot of choice. I remember vividly the 1990 World Cup in Italy, wow. which had the three tenors singing the theme song, which was very operatic and beautiful. And England were quite a good team then, but they didn't end up winning it. And from there, it just becomes part of your lifeblood. becomes part of your routine. You know, every Saturday, you would be either following along on the radio because you weren't able to watch it in those days, live on TV because they had media blackouts. They wanted to preserve the sanctity of the match going experience for people who went. So yeah, you weren't able to watch it on TV. All games used to be three o'clock on a Saturday. And then once Sky, which was, you know, Rupert Murdoch and, and all that kind of stuff, Once they bought the rights to the Premier League, they were the first ones to really monetize the heck out of it and realize how much money there was in this thing. And so then they started carving up the TV schedule. So now there are games on Sundays that you could watch live on Sky. Then there were staggered games uh, later on in Saturday afternoon or early in the morning, and you could see those. And so the game began to get sort of commodified a little bit, which is actually something I kind of want to talk about later, which is my love of Manchester United and also my sadness about kind of what is happening in sport generally right now in the Western world and how United are kind of a little example of how it starts and where it goes. Mm -hmm. But we can stick with the love for now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that. And Fanatics, if you haven't guessed, we're talking about Manchester U with Nicholas Haddon. And Nicholas, I guess I want to know, did you play football as a kid or are you just a fan who sits on the sidelines and cheers everybody on?
1: I did play. I played quite a lot. I played organized soccer from the age of five and that was competitive organized you know in, in in leagues and everything and you know you had very overbearing parents screaming on child <laughs> lines uh, on the sidelines excuse me uh-huh. my dad famously well famously for me being one of them he used to shout at me but we worked that through in therapy so that's good we're fine now But way I played that from the age of five and then went all the way up through into college playing there and Sadly, haven't played it as much over the years. I used to. Funny enough, as you get older, you pick up more injuries. Yep. And ankles and knees and hips and back start going. And it's like, ah, oh, it, time comes for us everyone. But um, I loved playing. I truly loved playing sport, and especially competitive sport. It is exhilarating and unlike any other feeling you, you have.
2: I'm glad you talk about the over aggressive dad yelling you because that was my experience. My dad just hollering at me. And Claire, all her children are playing football right now. So I like to picture her yelling at her kids as they go.
0: I am definitely... The over-aggressive mom I'm also the team manager, Nicholas. So. <laughs> oh,
1: uh, okay.
0: <laughs> you know, there's an extra, extra set of responsibilities that comes with me signing those ref, the game reports and, you know, whatnot. But yeah, I can completely empathize with your father or any parents for that matter in competitive sports because you're so invested. I mean, my kids are only nine and 11 and I'm super invested into their football careers. So I get it. I totally get it.
1: Key period in their development right now. So, you know, you should keep applying that pressure. Don't let them rest on their laurels.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. What position did you play?
1: I actually mixed between two positions and as I got older. So I started out as a goalkeeper myself, which is where the Peter Schmeichel thing came forward. I
0: knew you were a keeper when you said him in the Mount Rushmore. I was like, he is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was like a god to me, although I have almost none of his physical characteristics, which is like I'm 5'10", so um, there is a natural ceiling on how good I could be as a goalkeeper. And then once I hit that ceiling, essentially I transitioned to being a defender, <laughs> which are where I was for the rest of the time that I played. I just like anything that allows me to kick people legally. It's fun.
0: That's awesome. What do you think is the origin of the passion of football in Europe, but more specifically in the UK? You know, it is church. It is what you do. It is your idol that you worship and in a great, fantastical way. Why? How did this come up in the culture like this? And how does Man U fit in?
1: So it's the England's national sport, understanding its, its context and its place. So... Funnily enough, the school that I went to from 13 to 18 claims claims that it invented soccer. <laughs> and it has pretty good historical data on this, which is when the school was originally in London in the 16th century, so in the 1500s, there used to be a game where all of the boys at the school would basically in a, be in a big hallway, and they used to call it cloister, and the goal was to get this spherical object, either a rock or an inflated pig's bladder, and you had to put it against the opposition's wall and hold it with your foot against the wall for a number of seconds, and that would count as a goal. Now, there are hundreds of children playing this game at the time and there are no rules about tackling and things like that. So kids would get broken faces and legs and get elbowed and smashed. And you can imagine if you're the kid who has the ball trapped against the wall trying to score a goal and waiting, you then have 50 children (laughs) crushing you. So very, very unsafe, very, very insane. My school ended up leaving London because health conditions were too bad. There's too much cholera in London. Too many children were dying too frequently. So they decided to move to the countryside. And when they moved to the countryside, the game changed. They had more space. They had these fields. And on the fields, what they did was well, they can reduce the number of players because there's no wall to hold it against. Let's put a couple of posts. And if you put it between the posts, the ball between the posts, then it's a goal. And that was sort of the genesis of the game or where it came from. And from there, it became codified in the 19th century. And the very first cup competition in soccer was called the FA Cup, it's still going to this day. And one of the first winners of that were my school. So it's part of sort of the British psyche, British culture, this sport that we invented. But to why it's so big and why it still has this cultural resonance now in the UK. And it's a really good question. I thank you for asking it because originally the way that these clubs were formed, Mm -hmm. they were formed around working men's groups. Mm. So for example, Manchester United was originally Newton Heath locomotive. They were a bunch of rail workers, and it was essentially a way of organizing an activity for these working men uh, as a way for them to do something that they enjoy. All of these clubs, the original English clubs, all built around these working men's communities. And as they developed, they essentially were part of these community charters, which they all agreed to, which essentially said that we are here to serve our community. We are here to give people an outlet to come and enjoy watching men kick a ball around, because apparently that's a thing that we at some human level enjoy seeing. And these men should be representative of their communities. And it was considered amateur at the time, so they weren't paid, and people didn't have to necessarily pay money to come and watch. But they were representative of the cities and the towns in which they were based. And so they were really, truly part of these communities. It was people's sons and brothers and fathers and uncles who were playing in these teams. And because of that entirely grassroots nature of the formalization of the game, that is why I think it has such a powerful connection with people. And obviously, it's not just the same in England or in in Europe. Anywhere that the sort of gospel of soccer was spread Mm -hmm. to, like Argentina, Brazil, similarly, it came through the working class. It came through self-organization in communities and it really was this sense of, of, of lifeblood of people that you, you knew or related to in the community playing. And that's how you identified with them. And that's why the rivalries to this day, 100, 150 years later between some of these teams are so insane because they are truly ri- tribalistic rivalries of the people dating back you know, decades and hundreds of years.
0: Well, exactly. It's not even rivalries necessarily. I mean, they are team rivalries, but it's, it's the fandoms that are really invested. You know, we're, we're experiencing that in Los Angeles for the first time with LAFC. We've never had like that home mm-hmm. football team and they modeled much of their culture and their rollout based off of, you know, UK teams. And so they really tried to bring that to America. And I feel like they've done a pretty good job What is it about being a Man U fan that unites you guys? It's not just the players. The players change. The game evolves. You have different refs. The stadium pretty much stays the same. But what is it that bonds you guys each year and brings that community together and creates such loyalty that changing teams is almost unheard of?
1: I think for the most part, it's the same for every team in that if you're born into it and, you know, your father or your, or your mother, yeah. whomever it is, is, is like forcing you to sit down at the age of five. Like you don't have a lot of choice. There's no real switching. And if anyone talks about switching, you're like, that's just not the done thing. Mm-hmm. But I would say in terms of what I feel as a United fan and, and what it means to be a Manchester United fan, for me, it's about traditions and what our traditions are versus other teams' mm-hmm. traditions. And that's how you sort mm-hmm. of separate yourself from those folks. So... For Manchester United, they're the two greatest managers they've ever had, Sir Matt Busby, who is in the 1950s through the 1970s, and then Sir Alex Ferguson, who is essentially the 90s into the 2000s. And what they both built their teams on were young players, players who've come through the Manchester United Academy system, some of them from the ages of six or seven years old. By the time they're playing for the first team, at maybe 21, 22 years old, they've been there for, you know, for 14, 15 years since they were kids. Wow. And so... There's a real pride in watching local Manchester kids playing in this internationally elite and recognized club. But you know that they come from maybe 500 yards down the road from where the stadium is. And you know that they grew up in the shadow of that stadium, kicking balls against walls, thinking about one day what it would be like to playing at Old Trafford. And so when you see a youth team player come through and make it and break through, Mm -hmm. there is a huge bond that they have. And both Sir Matt Busby and Sir Alex Ferguson Really believed in the importance of having local players in your team and representing your team because of the connection with the fans and the passion with which those players would play in front of their home fans. So that's one thing. And the second thing is attacking football, attacking soccer. Both of them love to play very aggressive, thrilling football. And the great teams of Sir Alex Ferguson, it was sort of this swashbuckling style of it doesn't matter how many score against us as long as we score one more than you do we win and there's an old expression at the time during the great United teams was that they never lost they just ran out of time Mm -hmm. and that was a feeling you had when you were watching them they were never really down and out out of the games they would just keep going until the very end attack, attack, attack and that's the chant that used to come up in Old Trafford when things were really there was a sense of momentum you'd hear attack, 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 attack and having 70,000 people scream that at the same time is a very powerful thing
0: that last 15 minutes of the game you're totally right like i just experienced that this weekend my son was playing in a surf cup tournament down in san diego and they were losing their third game which was their elimination game and that last 15 minutes would got so crazy on both sides that it's just so intense to watch mm. as a fan what is your body doing how adrenalized are you I have this thing where I even kick my legs like I'm kicking the ball, you know? So what is that experience going on with you, Nicholas?
1: I'm a problem. It's not good. (laughs) My wife, who enjoys sport, she actually loves sport. She, by osmosis, likes the teams that I like and she enjoys watching sport as well. But she does struggle when I'm watching a team that I love, like Manchester United, because I get a bit much. I get a bit screamy and a bit shouty and I can't sit down and I'm standing and then I start bouncing and then I start tapping the television like that's gonna make a difference somehow. Last year, I actually tore a t-shirt.
2: <laughs> Hulk Hogan just, ah!
1: Yeah, yeah. the re- embarrassing thing was it wasn't my t-shirt. I forgot it at the time. I was borrowing it off a friend and, <laughs> and nostalgic value to them. And I, and I tore right through that sucker, right in half. So no, I'm, I'm a crazy maniac when I'm watching the teams that I love. I have a daughter now, she's very young. If she's present, I have to be very careful that she doesn't think the dad's having some sort of seizure or very about to like kill the men
2: on the television. <laughs> and you also have to build her up to be the next generation. Like, you know, this is not ending with you. She's gotta be a fan, right? Oh yes. Tell me how disappointed you would be if your daughter was not a Manu fan.
0: He's speechless.
1: <laughs> Just tremendously disappointed. I think about fatherhood a lot now that I am one and she's, she's 15 months old. Yesterday, actually, I think about all the ways in that, the healthy ways to be a parent and how to support your child's development and, and nurturing and all that kind of stuff. And You shouldn't, you know, infect them with the same pathologies and things that you have. You should let them grow into their own little special creature that they are and feel supported and loved and all that kind of stuff. But God almighty, yeah, I really, really need her to support Manchester United. And then not only that, I hope that she enjoys playing the game yeah. because it meant so much to me playing soccer for so long. And I still remember all, all the lows and all the highs. And I have the sense memory of what it felt like to win the big game or to even lose the big game. Yeah. And how those feelings and the sensations are like unlike anything else. And I include that to like making a show that gets nominated for Emmys, which is incredible. I remember that feeling just as well as I remember winning a game when I was 13 years old in front of like 40 people watching. It's the same thing. And I really want my daughter to, I hope that she would like to participate in that and get a sense of those, of those feelings. And also all the other good stuff that sport brings, like, teamwork communication figuring out your own limits and how deep within yourself one can dig and really you know all that kind of stuff i think sport is holistically incredibly important to society as a whole yeah so um yeah i really freaking hope that she likes it
2: (laughs) i'd be remiss though nicholas if i didn't ask about your father too because you mentioned him a couple times you got the love of man you from him what was the first game that you guys went to do you remember that
1: the first game we went to was at Old Trafford. Weirdly enough, it was uh, it actually wasn't a Manchester United game, bizarrely. It was uh, England at that time, for some reason, weren't playing at their national home stadium of Wembley. They were playing elsewhere, and they played a friendly against South Africa at Old Trafford in the summer, and I went up with my dad and some of my brothers. I also will never forget the first time you crest a staircase and then see the actual field. Uh And not just at Old Trafford, at at any stadium, like when you're in Dodger Stadium and then you get it and you you see that beautiful field at the Coliseum when you go up the steps, the feeling of seeing the field for the first time will stay with you forever. That's certainly the case for Old Trafford.
0: So we just got done with the World Cup and I had to order like eight new channels just to watch all the games for my boys. Mm -hmm. But being from the UK and now living in the US, watching football games over here, it's quite a different experience. Do you try to connect and watch over Zoom with friends who are actually there? What is your process for, like, capturing that feeling and that excitement as if you were in the stadium, but across the pond?
1: To be honest, no, I don't actually do any sort of viewing parties or anything like that, which is something I I do miss. I do miss, you know, going to the pub and watching with my mates and, and all that kind of stuff. So now... It's I've I've traded that sort of sense of camaraderie and community for uh, extreme comfort and laziness. <laughs> One of the benefits of the coverage of the US League is you get a lot of coverage. You can see virtually every single game, and between the different packages between whatever Peacock and YouTube TV and on everything, Fubo, and <laughs> you can see every <laughs> single game. And so, um, been able to watch a lot of them. I will say this: I, I don't, I haven't met up with any like Manchester United supporters groups in LA or anything like that, mainly because I. I think my social anxiety would just freak me out. So I'd be
2: like, I don't make any friends.
1: So for the most part, I, uh, I watch it with my wife or, or, or on my lonesome and I appreciate it that way. But yeah, and I certainly do miss sort of that the sense of atmosphere and seeing it with um, like-minded friends.
0: Will you uh, traverse over to a message board or a group online after you've watched a game to like see what the discussion is and how the breakdown of the plays and who should be leaving the team and why did they renew that contract and all that jazz?
1: Yes, I do. (laughs) And it's embarrassing. I
0: feel you. I feel you. And it
1: becomes an addiction. And actually, weirdly, here's the really weird thing my biggest message board ad- addiction isn't with manchester united although i love those and actually the, the site i go to is one called republic of mancunia which is a fantastic fan driven fan owned website and they're very level-headed a bunch of mancunian lads who run that and they've been around for a long time and they do really great work especially in the last 20 years when we've been owned by the glazers which is a whole different conversation mm-hmm. they're a great community over there weirdly i spend a couple of hours every day on the USC Trojans football boards forums, mm. because I went to SC as a, as a post grad. Somehow that infected me in some sort of way. And in addition to my Manchester United passion, which is my OG love, USC Trojans college football team oh. is my one B to the one A of Manchester United. And I will say that the fandom on those boards is something else uh, as well. And, but I have to be very careful whenever I'm on the boards because obviously I'm British and I can't reveal that information because anything that I ever suggest would be completely ignored or ridiculed. (laughs) Um, So I'm sort of a secret agent. Oh, I have to hide my own identity on those boards, but I I love all that. I love the sense of community. I love, the collective hand wringing and the hysteria going from moment to moment i, I love all of
2: that oh man uh, i went to the university of texas Longhorn, so my first time in la was for the usc texas game so welcome welcome we could talk about that all day on another podcast but <laughs> i want to know a little bit more you've clearly been to a lot of games do any of these games stick out as like a very special experience
1: one well, that actually I always remember is, um, it was in 1999, it was uh, May 1999, I don't know the exact day, and it was um, the FA Cup final, which I, was talk- I mentioned earlier is the oldest cup competition, formal yeah. cup competition that we know in soccer. The United were in the final against Newcastle United, which is a good team in the northeast of England, and um, we played them in Wembley, which is the national soccer stadium in London. And it also happened to be that day, my brother's, my middle brother's 21st birthday. So as a gift, my dad got these very elusive tickets to the FA Cup final that we went to see. And uh, Christopher was just hung over as a mule, just dying, (laughs) could barely keep his head upright during the whole thing. But we ended up winning. We won 2-0. And why it stays in my mind is that is the season in 1999 that Manchester United won the, the first ever treble, which is we won the Premier League, we won the FA Cup. And we won the European Cup, the Champions League. We're the first English team to ever do it. And that that FA Cup final was the second game of this, essentially this three-game stretch where if United won these three games, they would have been, without doubt, historically, the greatest English team to ever exist. And the game that I went to was the second of those three games. Yeah, I'll I'll never forget that for a variety of reasons.
0: That is amazing. The combination of the memories, the nostalgia, the having this love for Man Yu from your father passed along to you, now to your daughter one day. What does that touch on inside of you, Nicholas, that really makes this passion more than a passion, a fanaticism, I guess you could say?
1: I think it's about tradition. And Mm -hmm. I think it's shared loves. Where we get those loves from, and then in turn who we spread that love to. I think that's what it comes down to, and that's why, for a moment, to be a bit more sort of negative about my love of Manchester United, the fact that they have become essentially such a commercialized product that they were bought uh, in the early two thousands by an American family who owned the Tampa Bay, who still own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, the Glazer family. They were bought with what's called a leveraged buyout, and what that means was. The Glazer family didn't spend a dime buying what was at the time the biggest sporting franchise on the planet. They didn't spend a penny of their own money doing this. How do you do it? Because what they did was they did a deal with the banks where the banks said, we'll give you all the money to buy the club. And once you buy the club, we will put the debt that we used to buy the club onto the club's books. So the club, which previously was debt free and was very profitable. Now, in order for you to buy it, we'll just put it, charge it to the club that you are buying. And the servicing of that debt over the last 20 years and the money that's been taken over the club is about $1.5 billion for a family from Florida to come over and take the club, to run it in such a way where the club has not invested in infrastructure, has not kept pace with the other top teams in the world. In a stadium that is very old and very grand and very beautiful that is slowly decaying and dying and has had not had the updates necessary because this family is not willing to put money back into this thing that it essentially got for free and is taking billion dollars out of and i bring this up because also with what's happened recently in this week in fact with the college football conferences the death of the pac 12 which is over a hundred year conference the imminent death most likely at some point of the acc what's happening here is a sort of just a commodification of sport uh, so that people can make a bit more money. People who already make a tremendous amount of money just want to make a bit more money. And the ownership of these teams, which remember at the start of this conversation was based in community. Mm-hmm. was based out of you know, working men's clubs has now been completely taken out. So that now it's in the hands of private equity folks in Wall Street who have no connection to the sport whatsoever yeah. and just want to squeeze these things for as much as possible. And what we have to remember about sport is sport existed before people started paying for it. Mm -hmm. because humans just like getting together and doing these activities and cheering people on. It's in our nature. It's in our DNA. And what happens now is these sports only exist to make money when Mm -hmm. money was no part of the equation when they were being invented. So in terms of where it all comes from, it's tradition. It's about falling in love with the thing because you identify with it in some way. Either you're from the area or your parents from the area or they played for the team or something like that. And it's sort of that generational thing of handing something down, a shared passion, a shared love, which I think is really important in life is to have those traditions. And um, sport is a wonderful one, and certainly Manchester United is for me.
0: Well, before you get too depressed about the last 20 years or, you know, (laughs) plus, let me remind you that tradition only comes with one thing, and that's history. And that is a very long Mm -hmm. history of the club that 20 years cannot usurp, and you know, that's the that's one reason I love history and tradition as well, is it can't be manufactured. It has to be mm-hmm. earned through time. Man U has earned that through time and will continue to do so. And with that, Nicholas, I would love for you to regale us with a love letter to Manchester United.
1: I wish I'd written this down in advance. This is like <laughs> doing a no. speech with no notes whatsoever. Okay, if I was going to do a love letter to Manchester United, it would be along the lines of Dear Manchester United, What's the nature of this letter? It's am I like, I'm not breaking up with them. I'm telling them that I love them, but maybe I'm just a bit disappointed in them. Hold on, let me let me get this right. Okay, so <laughs> dear Manchester United, yeah. you have given me more happiness and moments of joy in my life than I could ever have hoped for. I'll forever be thankful to that and to your place in in, in not just my life, but my father's life and everyone else who's to come from me, our lives. Please don't lose your soul. Please remember where you came from and the meaning that you give so many people and the essence of this whole thing, and let that light guide you for the rest of your existence. Love Nicholas.
0: Love Nicholas. Yay! Amazing. Welding instructor Alex Declare knows firsthand how VR training platforms like Forge FX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's gonna be a shortage of welders. I love how Nicholas ties the sport into the culture yes. and how where you grew up, to some extent, does dictate your fandom. Would you agree with that? I mean, with you, with American football, that would definitely be the case, right?
2: I mean, I'm a Cowboy fan. You know, they keep losing, but I won't stop rooting. So I, I can always <laughs> relate, relate to a tortured fandom. And, and I loved that Nicholas's favorite players were the ones that really were from his time you know, the ones that he saw at a young age. And, you know, those, I understand that. I remember going and getting an autograph from Jason Kidd when I was five years old. You know, it's mm-hmm. those moments that really make you a fan of a team. And I loved hearing Nicholas, you know, just discuss not only his love, but but the love that people have for football. Because Claire, ever since we've been doing this podcast, the more we talk about worldwide football, the more appreciation I have for it as somebody who has never really followed the sport. It's really cool to have heard him just break it down and, and share some of his passion and why he loves not only the sport, but Manchester U as much as he does. It really it, it really hit home with me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as mentioned, I am glad some of that European culture has been brought to our city of Los Angeles with LAFC. Uh-huh. Woohoo! Uh, let's go to a game, Jake. This makes me want to go to a game like right now. Sold.
2: I want to see Messi whenever he comes to town. Well, yeah, you and the rest of the entire world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. Anyway, if you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Sharing is caring. That's what we like to say, and we mean it. Go to wearefanatics.com. Check out all our episodes at wearefanatics on Twitter, and we will see you guys next Thursday.
2: Stay wonderful, everyone.
0: And lucky, lucky listeners, we've got a bonus mini-sode coming out on Monday. Yes, Nicholas Hatton joins Jake and I to discuss the process of making jury duty. It is a really great mini-sode. So I hope you guys tune in. We will see you Monday. Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast.